Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're starting volume seven today, which is titled Breathing Mindfulness Meditation. Remember, this book series, particularly volumes two through 12, are extracts from the Pali Canon, the original source text of Gautama Buddha's teachings. In those books, there's 45 volumes in this collection that are very thick. I would say a good six inches thick for each book. And it would take a really long time for any one practitioner to read through all of these books and start to understand what's actually captured in them. It would take an enormous amount of time and effort as well as being able to understand it and really know what you're actually reading. And there's actually a lot of repetition in these books as well. So oftentimes you can be reading 40, 50, 60 pages with just a couple of words changed here and there. And what this book series has done is there's a team of people that have gone out and read all of this and they've extracted the most important teachings of the Buddha related to specific topics. So this topic of this volume seven is breathing mindfulness meditation. So what we have in these chapters are the most important, most penetrating, most critical teachings for you to understand as part of the path to enlightenment as it relates to breathing mindfulness meditation. So by reading through this book, you're going to glean all this penetrating and potent wisdom of the Buddha related to breathing mindfulness meditation. And it would take you an enormous amount of time to read through all these books and do all this correlation and pulling all this together. So other people as part of this large community in the world that's learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings, other people have already done this work, which helps to provide these teachings for people like us to glean the results and benefits of the work that they've done. There's no one organization that's kind of deciding what work needs to be done and how it needs to be done and things like this. But over 2,500 years, people have gradually decided to contribute certain benefit. And one of the benefits that a particular community here in Thailand has done is spent the time, effort, energy, and resources to really go through the Pali Canon and extract these excerpts that are going to be really penetrating for you for each individual chapter. And then our community that we have has decided to bring these teachings in. We've updated the translations, modifying the word choices to help them be more penetrating. We've added the references to each one of these chapters and 
I've put in explanations to help you understand what it is that I would share as it relates to each individual chapter. Gautama Buddha's teachings are very clear, very concise, very precise, very easy to understand in my opinion. So the explanations that I provide are really my own reflections and helping you to understand what I would teach as it relates to each individual chapter. So if you decide to join into this program and learn along with us, then I would suggest that you go get a copy of this book, Volume 7, which you can get at our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. You can download the book. You can print it. You can order a printed copy. You can get a Kindle version of this from Amazon. There's ability for you to be able to acquire this actual book. And then each week we actually study 10 chapters of the book. This week, since we're just starting, it's going to be chapters one through 10. And students have read these ahead of time and now come to class with any questions that they might have. So we're going to actually be reading each chapter. Then I will be teaching and sharing some teachings on that. And then I'll open up for any questions that you have. The teaching that I provide isn't as detailed as what you're going to see in the actual book. I tend to kind of take more of a medium view, where in the book I go much deeper in actually explaining each individual line of the teaching of the Buddha to help you understand more details related to the teachings. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. We will typically start with a meditation and then we will move into actually sharing the teachings by somebody reading the chapter, me teaching, and then opening up to any questions. But since we're starting a new book today, I would like to spend a little bit of time just kind of helping you to get acquainted with the book. And I see that my sound isn't working on Facebook and YouTube. That might be why Bossom has his hand up. Now it's it should be working. I apologize for all of you guys that are on Facebook and YouTube. You weren't getting the sound through. So a little bit of impermanence for you there. But I was just kind of letting people know the beginning of the program and kind of how we get started and, you know, what these books are all about. This will be recorded as or is being recorded as part of our podcast. So if you missed that first little introduction for the last five minutes, you can get that on our podcast once we release that. But I ended with just welcoming all of you to our class today and letting you know that typically we will start with a meditation, but what I would like to do is just kind of introduce you to this book a bit since we're starting a new book, and then that'll give us time to really thoroughly go through and get started with this book. Because the way that this book is structured is the very first chapter contains some important teachings that then just get kind of repeated at multiple points in the book. So I'd like to really take our time and go through that first chapter and some of the other chapters, which are actually quite long, because it's going to help us in the preceding weeks or succeeding weeks where we're just going to be repeating the same thing over and over. So taking our time today rather than doing meditation and really going through these chapters thoroughly, it'll help you to glean the wisdom that you need from the teachings that we're learning in today's class. But it's also going to help you as we go forward in the future weeks to really make sure you understand what's included in the actual book. So here I would like to share that this particular book is this extract of all the most important teachings related to breathing mindfulness meditation from the Buddha. And breathing mindfulness meditation out of all the meditations that he taught, which are kind of just a handful of meditations, he prioritized this meditation above all other meditations because 
the primary problem that is causing the discontentedness in the mind is craving, desire, attachment. This is where the mind has that mental longing with a strong eagerness. It's chasing after the objects of its affection. This path to enlightenment is to eliminate discontentedness. In order to do that, we need to eliminate all three poisons or all three unwholesome roots, which is craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. But once you start gaining the wisdom and starting to transform that ignorance into wisdom, one of the first things you understand as part of this path is that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing all the discontentedness in the mind in what your practice becomes among other things that you need to pursue is you need to understand how to eliminate craving desire attachment you need to work on doing that well the reason why breathing mindfulness meditation is a top priority for the buddhist path is because the priority is to eliminate craving desire attachment of course we're eliminating ignorance the unknowing of true reality that's the number one hindrance to enlightenment and while the minds why the mind stays in the unenlightened state but like i said once you understand that the very next thing is okay how do i eliminate this craving desire attachment because that's what's really causing the discontentedness and it's breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity that are the two primary solutions to eliminating craving desire attachment so that you can eliminate discontentedness from the mind so here we have an entire book volume seven dedicated to breathing mindfulness meditation and we also have an entire book dedicated to generosity which is volume 13 because this is the primary part of the path there's two individual books that are dedicated to just that and if you've been learning the Buddhist path, then you know that there's the eightfold path and there's a lot of content on each one of these steps that are being shared in the books and the classes and the things that I'm sharing with you guys. But here, what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks is really soaking into breathing mindfulness meditation and really being sure that you understand this and all the different facets of it. In the group learning program that I study and share with you guys for volume one, in there, chapter 11 has how to do breathing mindfulness meditation and some of the preliminary teachings that you need to understand of why you're actually doing breathing mindfulness meditation. And there's other meditations in there as well. But this book, not only is it going to explain to you how to do it and why to do it and all these different things, but the Buddha's words actually connect breathing mindfulness meditation to other things that are part of the path, like the four foundations of mindfulness, the seven factors of enlightenment, uh, right concentration, right effort, cultivating this mental discipline. He really explains a lot more about how breathing mindfulness meditation is connected to all these other parts of the path. So that's one of the reasons why it's so utterly important that you not only understand how to do breathing mindfulness meditation, which is taught in the group learning program as part of chapter 11 and all the classes that I teach there, but it's important that you understand how it relates to the overall elimination of discontentedness and how it relates to these other teachings. Not only the four foundations of mindfulness, not only the seven factors of enlightenment, but you'll see other parts of the Buddhist teachings that are connected to breathing mindfulness meditation and why it's such a priority. With that said, 
it's also important to understand that there are a lot of other aspects of this path that somebody needs to learn and practice in order to attain enlightenment. Oftentimes what I see is practitioners will spend a lot of time focused on just developing their meditation practice and that's it. And they feel that, you know, as long as I meditate, that's what the path is. And I'll meditate, 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 meditate. And some people think that they can meditate their way to enlightenment. And that's really all it takes. But there's a lot more to this path to enlightenment than just meditation. So you wouldn't be able to meditate your way to enlightenment, but you also wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation. And I think where this comes from that a lot of people feel like all we need is meditation is if you've come from a background of Christianity or you've come from a background of Muslim teachings, then prayer is really central to these two traditions. And oftentimes we're thought and we're taught and our thinking becomes that we just got to pray every day. We got to pray, 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 pray. And that's kind of what we do in those traditions. But when somebody's moving from Christianity or Muslim teachings into Buddhist teachings, they will sometimes feel that all they need to do is meditate and that's it. But for those of you guys that have been studying with me for any length of time, you know that if you just did breathing mindfulness meditation, but you went outside and you used harsh and aggressive speech with people, your life's going to be a real struggle because you're going to have all these people speaking harsh and aggressive to you because you're not practicing something like right speech, for example. So there's all these other factors on the path. Out of the eightfold path, there's only one step that is really related to meditation. Now, all of them, as we're going to talk in today's class, have a connection to meditation in one way or another. But it's really just one step that is really devoted to meditation by itself. So if we come to this path to enlightenment thinking that all we need to do is meditate, then we haven't really understood the Buddhist teachings. Because when you look at what's called the way of practice, which is something that I share in the group learning program, we talk about generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. This is the way of practice. So in daily life as a Buddhist practitioner who is aspiring to attain enlightenment, you should be regularly practicing generosity, which is the giving and sharing of your time, effort, energy, and resources with those people around you. Because by practicing generosity without any expectations of return, this is going to help you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It's going to help you to transform the mind away from craving, desire, attachment. Then you need to clean up your moral conduct as it relates to the five precepts and things like right speech, right action, right livelihood. You need to clean up that moral conduct because as long as you're going into the world and causing harm through your moral conduct, harm is going to keep coming back to you. And then the third thing is meditation and cultivating the mind through meditation. This is what we call the way of practice. So in a daily life and daily practice, this is what a practitioner who's aspiring to attain enlightenment is doing. Practicing generosity regularly in all different ways, practicing good, wholesome moral conduct, and practicing meditation. And it's all these things combined that the mind is then moving closer and closer to enlightenment. So even though we have an entire book dedicated to this, even though it's a top priority, it's important to understand that when you hear the Buddha say 
how important and such a priority breathing mindfulness meditation is, is that you also understand that there's other facets to this path to enlightenment beyond just meditation. Don't allow your practice to only be meditation by itself. Then the next thing I would like to share with you guys is to understand that your meditation practice is going to be impermanent. It needs to be fluid. It needs to change. It needs to adjust. If you currently are unenlightened right now, and you know that if you experience discontentedness, you know you're unenlightened. And that means that your practice needs to remain fluid. Not only your meditation practice, but also your practice of the Eightfold Path. If you are still experiencing discontentedness, that means there's still craving, there's still anger to a certain degree, and there's still ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. And if not until all three of these are extinguished over a consistent and long-term period that we can say that the mind is enlightened. So if you're experiencing discontentedness, that means your practice is not yet fully developed to the point where it's fully transformed the mind. So if you've been taught in meditation that you have to take a specific rigid position, this is actually not 100% true. There's multiple different options with your meditation. If you've been taught to label the thoughts or observe the thoughts, watch them come into the mind and watch them leave, if you've been taught in meditation to figure out your problems and sit there and reflect and contemplate in meditation, all these different things and others are things that are out there in the world that are being taught as part of meditation. But these are things that have been handed down through oral tradition that people have changed and changed and changed and changed and changed. What you're looking to do as a practitioner who aspires to attain enlightenment is to go back to the words of the Buddha and see what did the Buddha actually teach as it relates to meditation. While it's wonderful that we've got different people out in the world sharing different teachings about meditation, oftentimes what you'll find is when you actually study the words of the Buddha, you'll see that a lot of people, what they're teaching is in conflict with what the Buddha taught. And if you're practicing and continue to hold on to these things that are opposite of what the Buddha taught and things that are in conflict with his teachings, if you don't allow your meditation practice to be impermanent and choose to let go of these things that have been taught to you and that you've maybe been doing and maybe even provided a certain amount of benefit, if you continue to practice these things that are in direct conflict with the Buddhist teachings, you're going to find that you're not going to be able to experience enlightenment. So if somebody's in breathing mindfulness meditation, observing their thoughts, allowing them to come into the mind, kind of looking at them, judging them, labeling them, and then kind of sending them off. Or if somebody is like counting, sometimes we're taught to count during meditation. Here in Thailand, people are taught to say puto, puto, puto during their meditation. There's all these different things and others that Gautama Buddha never actually taught. And if you allow the mind to continue to hold on to these various things that have accumulated over 2,500 years that are just being handed down as part of the oral tradition, and you don't go back to what the Buddha actually taught, then you're basically sabotaging your practice and you're not gonna be able to experience enlightenment because you're doing things with the mind that is actually hindering it because there's still ignorance. 
there's still this unknowing of true reality about how to perform meditation in the way that the Buddha actually taught. So in order to get to enlightenment, you have to eliminate that ignorance and unknowing of true reality, transforming that to wisdom as it relates to multiple topics. And one of those topics is about breathing mindfulness meditation. You're going to need to know how exactly did the Buddha teach breathing mindfulness meditation so that I can do what he taught because that's what leads to enlightenment. Not all these different adaptations and adjustments and things that people have added or changed or modified along the years. That's just going to hinder you further because that's ignorance. That's unknowing of true reality. It's only a Buddha's teachings that are going to be penetrating and provide you the real wisdom that you need in order to progress and develop the mind to enlightenment. So when you read what the Buddha taught, just read it and you'll see what he taught and you'll see my words as well that are directly related to it. If you try to change or modify or adapt and say, okay, the Buddha said that, but I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to judge my thoughts. I'm going to label my thoughts. I'm going to count the breath. I'm going to you know, stay in this rigid position every single time I do meditation. It's got to be exactly the same position every single time, so forth and so on. If you allow all these things to come into the mind and you allow the mind to hold on to them, then you're just inhibiting your own enlightenment. So what we're going to be doing in this class and the other classes that are part of this book is looking at the words of the Buddha and see what did he actually teach when it comes to meditation. Because when you base your practice on what a Buddha taught, then your mind can actually experience liberation because a Buddha is uniquely prepared to be able to deliver the teachings that it's going to take to actually accomplish liberation. And because meditation, particularly breathing mindfulness meditation, is such a high priority, you would really like to refine and refine and refine your meditation practice, dialing it in closer and closer to what the Buddha actually taught so that then you're practicing what he taught and not just something you saw in a YouTube video or something that your friend told you or something you saw in a Facebook meme. And then the last thing I'll say before we go into actually the teaching is that by doing this and by practicing this way and by developing your practice in this way based on the words of the Buddha, remember, you're not believing what the Buddha said. You're not believing what I say. You're not believing what the Buddha said. But instead, by you dialing in your meditation practice closer and closer to what the Buddha taught and then you observing the improvements to the condition of the mind, that's how you'll know it's the truth. And that's how somebody can share with you that, you know, we're not to be observing our thoughts. We're not to be judging our thoughts. We're not to be labeling our thoughts. Because if you go back to what the Buddha taught and you practice that, you don't believe it. You learn it, you reflect on it, and you practice it. Then when you see the condition of the mind gradually improve, then you know, aha, these are the words of the Buddha. This is the true path to enlightenment because I learned what was in that book that David said was the words of the Buddha. I reflected on it. I practiced it, got some guidance more and more of learning how to do that. And then when I practice it, I see the condition of the mind improving. That's how I know it's the truth. And then you'll know the truth and you'll know what the Buddha actually taught and you'll see and observe the condition of the mind improve. That's the test. That's always the litmus test. That if 
something that you were taught isn't improving the condition of the mind, it isn't leading to the elimination of discontentedness, then we know it's not the words of the Buddha. It's not the path to enlightenment. Because if we're doing something that is not the words of the Buddha, that is not the path to enlightenment, it's not going to produce significant benefits and bring the mind to liberation. It might provide some calmness, some peacefulness here and there, but it's not going to produce the lasting long-term benefits that an enlightened mind is going to experience when the mind is liberated permanently from discontentedness. So still learn, reflect, and practice as it relates to the teachings on meditation. Don't believe what you see in this book. Don't believe what I share. Don't believe what I wrote in the book, but instead learn, reflect, and practice. And then when the condition of your mind is gradually improving, that's when you'll know that, yes, this indeed is the truth. These are the words of the Buddha. So let me turn things over to you guys, see if you have any questions on anything I shared there, and then we'll move into chapter one. The way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and the moderators will see that. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hello, teacher. I'm not seeing any question this time. Okay, let's go ahead and move into chapter one then. And we're going to read each chapter one by one all the way through Bossom. So sometimes, you know, we'll skip over things. There are some places where we can skip over just repetitive text that has already been shared in a previous chapter. But for the most part, we're going to be reading all the way through the entire chapter. Yes, to sure. A great fruit and benefit of breathing mindfulness meditation. Monks, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. And how monks is mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, developed and cultivated, so that it is of great fruit and benefit. Here monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he trains thus, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe in, he trains us, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe out. He trains us, calming the body sensations, experiencing joy, experiencing peacefulness, experiencing the mental activity, calming the mental activity, experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, liberating the mind, reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on fading away, reflecting on elimination, reflecting on letting go. It is, monks, when mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, is developed and cultivated in this way, that it is of great fruit and benefit. When monks, mindfulness of breathing, has been developed and cultivated in this way, one of two fruits may be predicted. Either final knowledge was done in this very life, or if there is a residue of clinging, the state of non-returner. Okay, thank you, Basim. Okay, so you heard me discuss that breathing mindfulness meditation is highly important because it's 
a specific antidote to craving desire attachment. And craving desire attachment is the cause of discontentedness. And our goal on the path to enlightenment is to eliminate discontentedness. Well, in order to eliminate discontentedness, one of the very important qualities of mind that we need to cultivate and practice at all times is mindfulness. This is why the Buddha called it mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation, because we need to cultivate this awareness of mind. This is the seventh step of the Eightfold Path. It's a very important part of the path. And without mindfulness, you wouldn't be able to experience enlightenment. Not only is it part of the Eightfold Path, it's part of the seven factors of enlightenment as well. And there the Buddha says, as part of the seven factors of enlightenment, that we should always practice mindfulness. Always, always, always. All your waking hours. Even when you're dozing off to sleep, you should still be aware of any thoughts that are coming to the mind. Because if there's any unwholesome thoughts that are coming to the mind, you need to cut that off and let it go. Even when you're waking up in the morning, if there's any unwholesome thoughts that are coming up in the mind, you have to have that awareness. Cut it off and let it go. And then all day long, you need to be aware of the mind, cut it off and let it go. The Buddha talks about mindfulness as a guard. He talks about it as a single guard to guard the mind from discontentedness and guard these six sense bases that the six sense bases have this longing with a strong eagerness, wanting the objects of its affection. That's the craving, desire, attachment. And it's mindfulness and being able to observe the mind pulling towards the objects of its affection, that you're then able to cut that off and let it go. Oftentimes in daily life, people are sharing that they are meditating all day long. Well, if you understand what meditation is, it's not possible to meditate all day long. What meditation is, it's a dedicated, active, purposeful meditation session where you're cultivating the mind, you're training the mind to either eliminate unwholesome qualities or cultivate wholesome qualities. And you're doing this in the seated, standing, lying, or walking positions. That's what meditation is. It's a dedicated, active, purposeful training session where you're eliminating unwholesome qualities, arising wholesome qualities, in either the seated, standing, lying, or walking positions. When we're going throughout our day and we're walking a dog, or we're jogging, or we're driving, or we're gardening, or we're doing something like this, we're not meditating. But during those times, we should be practicing mindfulness, awareness of mind. And it's utterly important that you do develop the ability to practice mindfulness. And that's one of the things that you're doing as part of breathing mindfulness meditation. The unwholesome quality that you're eliminating is part of this dedicated, purposeful, active training session where you're eliminating unwholesome qualities is craving desire attachment. And you're cultivating the wholesome quality of mindfulness and concentration. That's what we're actually accomplishing during breathing mindfulness meditation. And now that we're in this program into the seventh volume, it's important that you start understanding this mindfulness really deeply. That in the group learning program, I talk about it as awareness of mind. And I say, you know, your first six months, a year, however long, think about mindfulness as awareness of mind, just having awareness of the mind. And that might be where you are right now, that that's the way you think about 
breathing mindfulness meditation and any mindfulness that you're practicing, you might just be thinking about it as awareness of mind. But now what you need to start moving towards is understanding mindfulness in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness. And we're going to be talking about that today because the Buddha brings that up. What you're cultivating is mindfulness, not just awareness of mind, but you're cultivating these four foundations of mindfulness so that you're cultivating and training the mind to be aware of these in meditation, but then you can practice the four foundations of mindfulness in daily life as part of this mindfulness or right mindfulness that the Buddha discusses that we need to be practicing at all times, all waking hours of our day. You need to understand the first foundation, which is bodily sensations, that prior to any discontentedness, there's going to be bodily sensations. If you were stage fright or you were shy, you might feel butterflies in the stomach. That's a bodily sensation. If anger is arising or frustration, you might feel heat or sensations kind of trickling up the body. At least that's what I feel. Everybody's going to be a little bit different. You might feel pressure or heat in the head as you start getting angry, right? We call people hot-headed, right? That's the bodily sensation. You might feel tension with anxiety and stress around your neck and your shoulders. Everybody's going to be a little bit different, but you need to start cluing the mind in in daily life and in meditation too to observe these bodily sensations because you're going to need to have that level of awareness that when something occurs, there's these bodily sensations that come first because the goal there is to cut that off and let that go as a bodily sensation. Then if we don't cut it off as a bodily sensation, it's going to become feelings in the mind. These are painful feelings, of course, but there's also those pleasant feelings and neither painful nor pleasant. So you need to be aware of these excited, pleasant feelings that are arising because that's based on craving, desire, attachment too. And you need to cut off those conditioned feelings. And then when there's painful feelings that are coming into the mind, you need to be aware of those arising and then cut those off and let them go. If you can cut them off as bodily sensations, great. You just saved yourself a whole bunch of problems. But if they're in the mind as painful feelings, you need to cut them off there and that will be beneficial as well. And then same thing with the neither painful nor pleasant feelings. You need to cut those off and let those go as well, either as bodily sensations or feelings once they become feelings in the mind. But you're going to need to back this up all the way to the bodily sensations in order to get to liberation and get to enlightenment. As long as the feelings keep coming into the mind, the mind's not enlightened. It's not going to get liberated because you don't have control. You don't have discipline of the mind. They're allowing to come into the mind as feelings. So developing your understanding of the four foundations of mindfulness and backing it up where you have such preciseness, such precision with the mind, such awareness that you can see these bodily sensations and cut them off and let them go there, that's where you can actually get to enlightenment. And the Buddha says someone who's able to do that is very close to enlightenment. But nonetheless, you might not be there on every single situation right now. You might be experiencing the feelings coming to the mind, that second part of the four foundations of mindfulness. But you can cut it off there too and let it go. And that will be very helpful for you. Because if you don't, then it's going to come to the third part of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is it's going to affect the condition of the mind. The condition of the mind is going to be affected for multiple hours, days, or maybe a week or two. 
this is how the condition of the mind is affected when you allow those feelings to permeate in the mind. And this is why when you're meditating, you don't allow the thoughts to come into the mind, observe the thoughts, label them, judge them, and all those kind of things, because you're allowing the thoughts to come into the mind and rumiate in the mind. And now once they're feelings, it's going to affect the condition of the mind. But there again, you can also address the condition of the mind. If you're observing hours, days, or weeks of a negative, unwholesome aspect of the mind, then you can cut it off and let it go there too. Because if you don't, then it's going to form mental objects, things like central desire, things like ill will. And these mental objects are more deeply rooted in the mind and they're a lot harder to let go of. Things like complacency is a mental object. So if we allow the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind to be affected, then there's going to be these mental objects. And there are mental objects in a person's mind who's currently unenlightened. But the idea is, is that what you're doing is getting more and more awareness of these four foundations of mindfulness through meditation, that as you're in meditation, as soon as the mind moves off the breath, you cut that off and let it go. And now by training the mind to easily let go of these thoughts or various perceptions that come into the mind or various decisions that the mind wants to make, well, right now you're meditating. It's not time to do that. Instead, you're cutting off and letting that go, cutting that off and letting it go. And then in daily life, when you experience these bodily sensations arising because of the craving desire attachment, now you know that that's the precursor to any discontent feelings coming into the mind, either pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Seeing that precursor coming into the mind by feeling those bodily sensations, if you can cut it off right there, outstanding. You've just saved yourself a whole lot of challenges, a whole lot of struggles, a whole lot of difficulties. And it's in breathing mindfulness meditation that you're cultivating that. Because if you're focused on the breath, either the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of air moving into the nose, now more and more you can observe when the mind's off the breath. Maybe when you first start, your mind's off the breath for three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm meditating. Let me cut that off and bring it back. But then what you would like to do is get that indication earlier and earlier. So instead of three, five, or 10 minutes, maybe it's two minutes. Maybe it's a minute and a half. Maybe it's a minute. Maybe it's 30 seconds. Maybe it's 10 seconds. Maybe it's five. Maybe it's one second. And then right away, you can cut it off and let it go and bring the mind back to the breath. This is where you're gaining discipline and control over the mind. So what the Buddha is doing here in his teachings is he's explaining to you that when you develop breathing mindfulness meditation, it is of great fruit and benefit because you're cultivating mindfulness, you're cultivating concentration, and you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. The great fruit and benefit is the elimination of discontentedness, getting to enlightenment. That's what the great fruit and benefit is. But how do you develop this? How do you do it? The Buddha, during his lifetime, encouraged people to go to the forest, to a foot of a tree, to an empty hut, and sit down there. 
that that would be an ideal place to meditate. And you might decide to do that in certain situations. But there's also some benefit to meditating in a city environment or where there are sounds and there's different lighting and different things like this. Moving your meditation around, it's really helpful to train the mind to not get fixed to just meditate in this completely still or serene environment. But even in the woods or the forest, you're still going to hear some occasional sounds. So if you have that kind of environment for you, great, but you're not going to have that permanently. So as you observe that the mind is maybe meditating in your bedroom every day, be sure that you move the mind around and meditate in different places. This can be really helpful for the mind to train it to be able to focus and have concentration in that mindfulness and not hold on and crave one particular place to actually meditate. Here he talks about sitting cross-legged, right? So having your legs crossed, which is what you would do if you were sitting on the floor. You would probably cross your legs. But there's also other positions as well. Nowadays, we might have some different ways that we need to sit in order to accommodate our joints or our aging body. And that's normal. That's why we have lying position, standing position, and walking position as well. But if you're doing meditation cross leg on the floor, you might decide to put a cushion under your rear to get that up in the air. And don't cross your legs real tight because this will inhibit the circulation. Now, some people like to meditate in full locus position, which is where their feet are kind of overlapping their legs. Some people can do that. Some people can't. You're not required to have the body in any one fixed position in order to meditate. Everybody's going to have a slightly different position. What's important is that the body is comfortable, that it's not luxurious, but it's also not painful. But the middle way would be that the body is comfortable. So if cross leg sitting on the floor works for you, great. But you could also sit on a chair. You could sit on a bench. You could sit other places as well. Just always keep in mind, not luxurious, not painful, but comfortable. This next part is really important. Straighten up his body or straighten his body. Sometimes he uses the word having the erect body. This is really important. This is the upper body is what he's talking about. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation that if you were slouching, then the body is kind of too luxurious. The mind is going to then essentially be disengaged. It's going to be inattentive and unalert during the meditation. You would like to keep the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. And the way that you do that is by keeping the upper body erect. And then setting up mindfulness in front of you. What this is all about is if you understand awareness of mind and you understand the four foundations of mindfulness, then you would like to ease the mind into meditation and set up mindfulness or awareness of mind in front of you as you're preparing for meditation. Don't just plop down into meditation going from maybe outside right into meditation, but instead do something to kind of ease the mind into meditation. And what I share is I share chanting as a way to do that. And I help you understand how to do that. Then you would like to start establishing the breath, gradually breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, in and out. And you would like to start focusing on the breath. That's what the Buddha is explaining here in these statements is to start focusing. Understand if the breath is long, then know that it's long. If it's short, know that it's short. He's not necessarily saying that your breath should be long or it should be short. 
Essentially, what he's saying is bring your awareness to the breath and know the quality of your breath. If your breath is short and rapid, you would like to kind of slow that down and ease it down. But also, if your breath is too long and elongated and you're lacking the air that you need, that wouldn't be wise either. So you need to find that middle way where you're gradually breathing in through the nose, not trying to control or force the breath, but you have awareness of the breath. Then he goes into these other statements. Now, these statements that he's sharing here, these statements are not something that you necessarily need to repeat in the mind as you're meditating because you actually are interested in focusing on the breath, letting go of everything, not repeating statements in the mind. This is one of the things that people do. They either count or they use mala beads or they say puto, puto. The mind is holding on to something still. You would like to let go of all of this stuff. If you need a little bit of this to ease the mind into meditation, that's fine. But then the vast majority of your meditation should just be the body, the mind, and the breath, where you're not focused on anything other than the breath. You're not repeating anything in the mind. You're just focused on the breath. So these statements are guidance. If you've ever done breathing mindfulness meditation with me, I will provide some statements and some guidance but then I will be quiet and let all the students do the work. And then I will come back at the end with some chanting. So these are the statements that the Buddha is using in order to prepare his students for meditation. And then he's going to be quiet and let the students do the work. So if you're doing meditation now where you're constantly listening to music or a teacher is constantly guiding you through a recording or something like that, you would like to let go of all of that. You might need that to enter into meditation for a while, and you might use that initially to get your meditation practice started, but then you would like this elongated period of time where you're not listening to music, you're not counting, you're not using beads, you're not listening to guidance, but it's just the body, the mind, and the breath focused on training the mind that when the mind's off the breath, you cut it off and let it go. So these statements are the Buddha kind of preparing the student's mind for meditation. But then remember, even this guidance, eventually you would like to get rid of this too, where you can just sit down without having any guidance at all. You can just do your chants if that's what you're going to do and ease into meditation, do your meditation session and come back out of your meditation. That if you're looking for guidance every single time you meditate, this is going to be problematic over time. The first three months, six months, a year, what have you, if you need that to get started, then use that. And if you need it occasionally by joining your teacher for meditation, then use that because it can be helpful. But 80 or 90% of your meditation should just be the body, the mind, and the breath, not needing any kind of guidance. Just you. This is your own independent journey with your own mind, as if there is a you, right? So these additional statements that the Buddha is explaining is helping you to understand what you're going to be doing during meditation. But then he's going to be quiet and you're going to actually do it as part of doing the work. So experiencing the whole body during the meditation, you might observe bodily sensations like an itch or something else on the body. You're going to experience these bodily sensations. And then he says, calm these bodily sensations. So when you observe those bodily sensations during meditation, cut them off and let them go. 
And this is going to be very helpful for you if you're doing that in meditation rather than immediately itching or scratching your nose or scratching your head or something like that. Try to see if you can go through the whole life cycle of that where you see that itch arise, you see it change, and then you see it fade away. This is going to be really helpful that if when you observe that, you cut it off and let it go, then you're going to be able to do that in daily life when you experience bodily sensations. So when he's saying calming the bodily sensations here, this is the cutting off and letting go. Then you may experience as part of meditation as you get closer and closer to the jhanas, you might start experiencing this joy and this peacefulness that comes into the mind. If you're experiencing this joy and peacefulness of any time during your meditation, just let it go. Just continue to focus on the breath, right? Just know that the mind is awakening and just let it go. If you revel in that joy, if you revel in that peacefulness, be like, oh, wow, look at me. I'm so enlightened. My mind is awakening. Look at all that joy. Wow, there it is. Oh, my goodness, right? This is the craving or and also the arrogance and the pride coming into the mind. So when you observe the joy and peacefulness come into the mind, just stay focused on the breath, just almost like it's not there. I talk about it as like as if you were standing on your street naked and the sun comes out and shines on you. You just continue to focus on the breath, ignoring this, the rays of the sunshine, right? And if you have harmful thoughts during your meditation, it's like it's raining on you. It's like you're standing in the middle of your street, completely naked. All your neighbors are out looking at you. It's pouring down raining and you're just focused on the breath, okay? Of course, you're probably not going to do that because you would get arrested, but you use that visual, that analogy of standing in the middle of your street naked, being unaffected by the sunshine, which is the joy and the peacefulness, and being unaffected by the rain, training the mind to be content and calm regardless of what's going on in the mind. Continue to focus on the breath. Don't allow that joy and peacefulness to take the mind off in another direction. And then also, as you experience this joy and peacefulness with the mind awakening in meditation, don't expect, don't crave, don't desire, don't want this to occur next session. Because as the mind awakens and you start experiencing this overwhelming joy or this bliss, this calmness, this peacefulness coming into the mind, you might experience that for two, three, four, five meditation sessions, and then it's going to be gone. So don't expect to have that every single time because your meditation practice is going to be, you know, shifting and changing because of impermanence. So if you experience this overwhelming joy and peacefulness and then you expect it in the next meditation session, it's not going to happen because the mind still has craving. You're craving for that joy and peacefulness in the meditation session. So know that that's impermanent as you're making your way to enlightenment. Once the mind is enlightened, it's going to always be joyful. It's going to always be peaceful in meditation and outside of meditation. But if you allow the mind to crave that joy and peacefulness that you experience, it can be like a real flood, especially when you experience the jhanas. It can be like a real flood in the mind. And then it's so amazingly peaceful and so amazingly joyful that something you've never experienced before, more joyful and more peaceful beyond pleasure and pain that you might end up craving that in a future meditation session, and you've got to let that go. So as you're 
letting go of the joy and peacefulness in your meditation, you're also going to experience this mental activity. And as you experience this mental activity, you would like to calm that. The Buddha calls it stilling the mind or calming the mind or quieting the mind. So anytime you see mental activity, this is where you cut it off and let it go. This is not where you should observe your thoughts, you should judge your thoughts, you should label your thoughts. That's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught to eliminate, cut that off, let it go, because that's going to be very useful for you in daily life. Then when you experience the mind, then you gladden the mind. You concentrate the mind, liberate the mind, letting it go. Reflecting on impermanence. Observe how the thoughts are impermanent. Observe how the sounds are impermanent. Observe how those scratches on your skin are impermanent. Notice all this impermanence around you. Just If you need to reflect on impermanence during your meditation, you can do that, particularly early on if you haven't yet deeply soaked in the universal truth of impermanence into the mind. For a week or two, you might just sit in meditation, focused on the breath. When you hear a sound, just say to the mind, it's impermanent, it's impermanent, it's impermanent. Then the sound's gone. Now you're sitting there focused on the breath. You feel a scratch coming up to the surface of the skin. You just think it's impermanent, it's impermanent, it's impermanent. Then it goes away and now you just focus on the breath. So you might need to do that, but you're not going to do that every single session. If you did that every single session, then your mind's still holding on. But you might need to do that for a few days or a few weeks just to get the universal truth of impermanence deeply soaked into the mind. And once you do, you're going to see that there's this fading away, there's this elimination of these thoughts and feelings, and then there's this letting go where you train the mind to let go and it gradually starts to let go. By cultivating the mind in this way, the Buddha reminds us again, it's of great fruit and benefit. And what are the fruits and benefits that one's going to experience? Well, he says there's two fruits that may be experienced in this life. One is final knowledge or final wisdom, which is enlightenment. Someone who has right wisdom is going to have experienced enlightenment because they've come to final knowledge. They've gone through the entire path. They've investigated the entire path. They didn't believe it. They learned, reflected, and practiced. They continually actively train their mind. They've gotten to final knowledge or final wisdom. Right wisdom is part of the tenfold path. The mind is enlightened. So that's the one fruit and benefit that the Buddha says will be accomplished in this life through breathing mindfulness meditation. Or if there's residual clinging, this means there's just a little bit of craving and clinging still left. Then the Buddha says the person will experience the state of non-returner, which is the third stage of enlightenment. The fourth stage of enlightenment is arahant. That's when the mind is enlightened, no longer experiencing any discontentedness. They've eliminated all 10 fetters. In the third stage of enlightenment, as a non-returner, they've only eliminated the first five fetters, the lower fetters. This person still has residual clinging, and therefore, they're still experiencing a residual amount of discontentedness. And because of that, they're going to be reborn into the heavenly realm, and they're going to attain enlightenment there. And that sounds like it might be ideal, but it's really not. So 
the best thing to do is experience enlightenment in this life so that you'll eliminate discontentedness and get to enjoy it here in the human realm for the rest of this life. But should you fall short of that, if you're a non-returner, you will have one more existence in the heavenly realm, but then from there you'll attain enlightenment and then you will no longer exist in the cycle of rebirth from that point forward. So the Buddha is saying that breathing mindfulness meditation brings these results of enlightenment or the state of non-returner, which is the third stage of enlightenment, which is also essentially enlightenment just in the next rebirth in the heavenly realm. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, teacher. On uh, Zoom, Kyle has a question. She writes, during the day going out about your business, should we be cutting off and letting go of thoughts and worries about the future and past? Yes, in your daily life, you should be cutting off all unwholesome thoughts. If you're having a wholesome thought, you no need to cut that off and let that go. But in meditation, we train differently than what we do in daily life. In meditation, we're cutting off all thoughts, wholesome and unwholesome. Because what we're doing is we're trying to train the mind to easily let go, eliminate that craving, desire, attachment, arising mindfulness and arising concentration. So in our training, two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more, we're training the mind to let go of all thoughts, cut that off and let it go. And then the benefit is, is in daily life, you observe the mind because you now have mindfulness, you have more concentration, and now you're more easily able to cut off and let go of the unwholesome thoughts. But if you're having a wholesome thought like, hmm, I'm thinking about changing jobs, or I'm thinking about getting my wife this or that, or I'm thinking about maybe going on a holiday, or I'm considering, you know, saving some money and putting this away to give me more of a foundation in my financial life or any things like this, you can continue to have those thoughts and process those thoughts in daily life. It's only the unwholesome thoughts, like if you were having any thoughts to do anything related to the five precepts, for example, uh, or if you're observing that you're practicing wrong speech, cut that off and let that go. So as you learn all the wholesome aspects of this path, you can allow that to happen in daily life because that's what you would like to practice. But where you observe that the unwholesome thoughts are coming to the mind based on all the unwholesome things that you learn as part of this path in daily life, that's what you're cutting off. Well, Miranda has hand raised. That's good to hear. Yes, sir. Um, can we momentarily focus on the breath or on some of these examples? here um, during day-to-day life to focus the mind on the breath for a moment to help us cut off bodily sensations or feelings that are arising in the mind? Absolutely. So if you're getting used to this during meditation and you're training the mind to get comfortable with this, now in daily life, say something's happening in your life, any number of things that could be happening, and you're starting to observe bodily sensations, you could easily close the mind, start focusing on the breath, and just focus on the breath and just say, let it go, let it go, let it go. And that can be really helpful for you uh, because you've already done that in meditation and maybe you just need this 30 seconds or two minutes of something in daily life and then that can help you. Or maybe you need five minutes or 10 minutes. So the Buddha says at other parts of his teachings, he says, breathing mindfulness meditation will eliminate evil on the spot. He says, any evil, unwholesome mental states, 
it will eliminate them on the spot. So if you're regularly cultivating breathing mindfulness meditation as part of your practice, and then you have something that happens in your daily life based on things that are getting shaken up and you observe some discontentedness, either bodily sensations are starting to arise, you have feelings in the mind, you have condition of the mind, you could easily close the mind at a red light, in your bedroom, you know, it doesn't have to be a full out meditation session. It can be just a little two or three minute thing here and there. And that can be really helpful for the mind. And the Buddha calls this, you know, essentially eliminating evil, unwholesome mental states on the spot. And as you do this more and more, you won't need to do it as frequently because you can use it in those situations, dispel that evil, unwholesome mental state, get it out of the mind, kick it out of there cut that off and let it go. And now the mind can come back into a more radiant, more brightness without being dragged down by this unwholesome aspect of the mind that is starting to arise. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more question, teacher, for now. Okay. So we'll go on to chapter two, and you'll see here all the explanations that I've given. So be sure to read that if you haven't already. Lots of explanation on that one since it's the first chapter. Yes, let's go to Miranda. Seven predicted fruits and benefits of breathing mindfulness meditation. Monks, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. And how, monks, is mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit? Here, monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him, just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows. We're going to skip all those because it's the repeat of what we just saw. It is, monks, when mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, is developed and cultivated in this way that it is of great fruit and benefit. When monks, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, has been developed and cultivated in this way, seven fruits and benefits may be predicted. What are the seven fruits and benefits? One, one attains final knowledge, wisdom, early in this very life. Two, if one does not attain final knowledge, early in this very life, then one attains final knowledge at the time of death. Three, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life or at the time of death, then with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of Nibbana, enlightenment, between one life and the next. Four, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life or at the time of death or become an attainer of Nibbana between one life and the next, then with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of Nibbana upon landing. Five, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life or at the time of death or become a common attainer of Nibbana between one life and the next or become an attainer of Nibbana upon landing, then with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of Nibbana without extra effort. Six, If one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life or at the time of death, or become an attainer of Nibbana between one life and the next, or become an attainer of Nibbana upon landing, or become an attainer of Nibbana without extra effort, 
and with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of Nibbana with extra effort. Seven, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life or at the time of death, or become an attainer of Nibbana between one life and the next, or become an attainer of Nibbana upon landing, or become an attainer of Nibbana without extra effort, or become an attainer of Nibbana with extra effort, then with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes one bound upstream, heading towards the heavenly realm. When monks, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, has been developed and cultivated in this way. These seven fruits and benefits may be predicted. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So just like as is the Buddhist style that you've seen in other parts of his teachings, even though in that previous chapter he says, hey, these are the two benefits, we don't look at the Buddhist teachings in isolation. He's typically going to teach in one way, in one particular teaching, and then in other ways he's going to expand He's going to layer his teachings so that students can gradually learn them little by little. So that first chapter, even though it says these are the two benefits of breathing mindfulness meditation, they're not the only benefits, right? Sometimes that's the way the mind thinks when it's craving permanence. It just thinks that, okay, the Buddha must have said it once. It was written down exactly the same way. He just said it the same way and and that was it. But when you look at the totality of Gautama Buddha's teachings, he will add things like this. This is the layering effect of the Buddhist teachings. So here he's giving us now seven fruits and benefits, where in the previous chapter, he only gave us two. So he's expanding upon this. The first one is one that he said previously, which we heard about. Here he's adding in that somebody can attain enlightenment at death. This is something that is taught as part of the path to enlightenment that somebody can go their whole life and then attain enlightenment at death. And if this is something that you haven't been exposed to before, here you see it in the words of the Buddha. And if you have questions about how that occurs, we can talk about it if you like. Then this third one, he talks about that once somebody dies, if they haven't attained enlightenment there, they can actually attain enlightenment kind of in between lives before they actually get to the next life they can actually attain enlightenment there as well then this fourth option he talks about attaining enlightenment upon landing like once you actually are reborn you can actually attain enlightenment upon landing once landing in this new life and i explain these in a lot more detail in another book in another chapter which i'll show you here in a moment And then there's this fifth one, which is attaining enlightenment without extra effort. This is a person who has learned and practiced the teachings in one life. Now they didn't get to enlightenment in that life, but they were reborn into another human life. And now they attain enlightenment without a whole lot of extra effort, without a whole lot of struggle. It was fairly straightforward for them. So if you're reading these teachings and it just seems to be moving along for you pretty well, there's a potential that you might have learned and practiced these teachings in a prior life. Don't need to get all hung up on that. Don't have to have arrogance or pride. But that will help you understand why some people absorb these teachings and progress with these teachings really easily and more straightforward where somebody else doesn't it takes them more effort which is what the buddha is explaining here in number six so if you find it a bit of a struggle to learn and practice and put together these teachings there's a potential that you may not have learned these teachings in the past 
this could be your first human birth and your first opportunity to learn and practice these teachings and is one of the reasons why it's taking you extra effort. But also, even if you have learned and practiced these teachings to a certain degree in a past life, you can still be reborn into another life and it still take you extra effort. Depends on what your accomplishments were in your previous life and what your attainments were. And then there's this seventh one where the Buddha says that someone who essentially falls short of enlightenment, they are bound upstream, headed towards the heavenly realm. This is a rebirth in the heavenly realm. Beings can attain the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner and be reborn in the heavenly realm, but that's not the only way that you can be reborn in the heavenly realm. There's other beings that can be reborn into the heavenly realm too. You can actually be reborn from the animal realm straight into the heavenly realm. You can even be reborn from the realm of hell straight into the heavenly realm. This is very rare, but it does occur. So a practitioner who's learning and practicing these teachings, they can benefit from this breathing mindfulness meditation and have all of these opportunities to develop and cultivate the consciousness leading closer and closer to enlightenment. So you shouldn't feel that all's lost if you don't attain enlightenment in this life. But also, I would suggest that you don't really aspire for any of these except for number one. Number one is what everyone should actually be moving towards, is attain final knowledge early in this life. Because if you do, then you'll get to experience the rest of the, this life with this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. The next best option would be to attain enlightenment at death. But you're not going to necessarily know that that's what's going to actually occur. And at the time of death, it's actually kind of too late. So the ideal would be for you to learn, reflect, and practice to attain enlightenment in this very life. That's what everyone should be aspiring for. But the Buddha explains these other situations that occurs so that you understand that all is not lost if you don't attain enlightenment in this life. Questions on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right, we'll go to number three. Cultivating mindfulness of breathing fulfills fire four foundations of mindfulness, seven factors of enlightenment, true wisdom and liberation. There is, monks, one thing which, when developed and cultivated, fulfills four things, and four things which, when developed and cultivated, fulfill seven things, and seven things which, when developed and cultivated, fulfill two things. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing, monks, is the one thing which, when developed and cultivated, fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, fulfill true wisdom and liberation. Let me pause you right there for a second, Basim. I would like to just teach each piece as we go, since this is a pretty long chapter. So here, the Buddha is you know, setting up what he's about to talk about, which is common. That's his common way of teaching. He kind of shares what I'm going to share, then he shares it, then at the end he shares with you what he has shared. <laughs> so there's these three steps. Here's what I'm going to share. Let me share it. And then, by the way, here's what I shared with you. This is a common thing even today when people are teaching presentation skills. They teach you to do this because it's a very wise way to present information to people. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, 
and then tell them what you told them. This is really good for public speaking. So that's what that first paragraph is. Now here where he says concentration by mindfulness of breathing, this is starting to help you clue in that your mind should be concentrated on the breath during meditation. It shouldn't be lost in thought. You shouldn't be reflecting. You shouldn't be trying to figure out your life. You shouldn't just be ruminating over thoughts. But instead, when the mind is in meditation and you observe these thoughts, cut them off, let them go, and bring the mind back to the breath. This is where he's starting to clue you into that, showing you concentration, because whenever you see the word concentration in the Buddhist teachings, you should always think singleness of mind or single-mindedness. This is what he used for that word concentration. He also used singleness of mind, and that's what you're doing in meditation is singleness of mind, focusing on the breath. When the mind goes off the breath, cut it off and bring it back. Don't sit there and ruminate. Don't reflect. Don't judge the thoughts. Observe the thoughts. That's not what you're doing. Just cut it off, let it go, and come back. And then he starts talking about how these breathing mindfulness meditation leads to these other things. What we were just talking about is breathing mindfulness meditation leads to the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. That's what you need to ultimately cultivate in order to get to enlightenment. And then by cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, it leads to the seven factors of enlightenment, which is something I teach in the group learning program and something that we can explore here for you as well. And then that leads to true wisdom and liberation. So it's breathing mindfulness meditation leads to the four foundations of mindfulness, leads to the seven factors of enlightenment, which leads to true wisdom and liberation. True wisdom and liberation, the Buddha is pointing to the tenfold path. You learn and practice the eightfold path as part of getting to enlightenment. But an enlightened being is actually going to be practicing the tenfold path, which has these extra two factors of right wisdom and right liberation. Right wisdom is being able to easily and with ease be able to explain the teachings, that you have the wisdom, that you've cultivated such wisdom or right wisdom, that you can easily explain the teachings because you're practicing them and you can put them into words and easily explain them to others. And then you also, because of right wisdom and all the other factors of the path, are also going to have and be experiencing right liberation which is that the mind will no longer be experiencing discontentedness. So there's nothing extra that you need to learn or do in order to acquire right wisdom and right liberation. But right wisdom and right liberation is the results of practicing the entire Eightfold Path. So here, what he's saying is breathing mindfulness meditation leads to enlightenment. That's what he said in the other chapters, and that's what he's saying here. But he's also showing you this cause and effect of how breathing mindfulness meditation leads to the four foundations of mindfulness, leads to the seven factors of enlightenment, leads to right wisdom and right liberation, which is enlightenment itself. So the Buddha is really known for doing that cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, or this condition leads to that condition. And then because of that condition, it leads to this condition. And there's these cause and effect, this causal relationship. So here, by understanding all of this, then you understand to practice breathing mindfulness meditation, but also be sure you're cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, the seven factors of enlightenment, and develop right wisdom and right liberation.
All right, Basim. Well, mindfulness of breathing fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. How monks is concentration by mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. Here monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long he knows I breathe in long, or breathing out long he knows I breathe out long. Whenever monks, a monk, breathing in long, a nose, I breathe in long, or when breathing out long, knows I breathe out long. Uh, should I read it, teacher? Just this last piece. So it's repeating all those same things that we already have explored, and then he adds this to the end. Yes, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on the body in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and dis- displeasure in regard to the world. For what reason? I call this a certain kind of body, monks, that is, breathing in and breathing out. Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on the body in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Now, this is the same thing being repeated, and now he's talking about this one. Yes. A, uh, For what reason I call this a certain kind of feeling, monks? This is close attention to breathing in and breathing out. Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on feeling and feelings, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Okay. And now... He's moving into the third part of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Yes, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on mind in mind, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Okay. For what reason? I say, monks, that there is no development of concentration by mindfulness of breathing for one who is muddled and who lacks clear comprehension. Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on mind in mind, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Having having seen with wisdom. Okay. Well. <laughs> you can go there. <laughs> So, having seen with wisdom what is abandoning of craving and displeasure, the monk is one who looks on closely with equanimity. Therefore, monks... Yeah, the same repeating, Bardo. Mm-hmm. Here he's talking about mental objects. So he's going into the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Yes, okay. So, a, uh, having seen with wisdom what is abandoning of craving and displeasure, the monk is one who looks on closely with equanimity. Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on, on mental objects, in mental objects, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. It is monks when concentration by mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated in this way that it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. Okay. Thank you, Basim. So I was kind of jumping Basim ahead 
just because it's it's a lot of text and it's a lot of repeat. Uh, the Buddha's teaching with repetition because he spoke in an oral tradition. There wasn't things written down, so he repeated things over and over to help people's minds grab onto it and be able to understand it. Because one of the things about an unenlightened mind is it lacks clear comprehension. It lacks the ability to have deep memory. So in an oral tradition, what you do is you repeat things over and over and over again, which is a teaching method and a teaching tool. And what he does here is he says the same thing over and over and over, but what he's explaining for each one of these is that essentially while you're meditating, that if there's any bodily sensations that arise, that you should be aware of those. And then you cut them off and let them go. Same thing, he talks next about the feelings in the mind. If there's any feelings, this is the second part of the four foundations of mindfulness. If those come up into the mind, then you cut them off and let them go. That's removing the craving and displeasure, right? And then there's the next one, which is mind in mind. This is the condition of the mind. So if you observe the condition of the mind is being negatively affected, then you cut that off and let that go in meditation, but also in daily life as well. And then the last one is the mental objects, which are things like central desire, complacency, ill will, and things like that. So these are the four foundations of mindfulness that you need to understand and you need to start working with them skillfully. So if you're aware of these and you can see, aha, there's bodily sensations, cut that off and let it go. Oh, I missed it at the bodily sensations. Now it's feelings in the mind. Uh-oh, let me cut that off there and let that go. Oh, I didn't do that. I wasn't diligent. I wasn't active. I wasn't observing the mind. Look at this. I've been angry now for three hours or three days. There, you got to cut it off and let it go. The fourth one is the mental objects. If you notice that you're around a certain type of person and you have this mental object of ill will, maybe you have hatred, maybe you have racism, maybe there's certain ethnicities or certain types of people that you say they rub you the wrong way, but that's not true reality. What true reality is, is that your mind has this mental object that everybody who speaks this way or looks that way or has this color of skin or does things in this way, your mind is holding on to this mental object of ill will towards that person. So you've got to let that go, that you can't allow the mind to have any mental objects related to anything. So that's what the Buddha is saying is cultivate this and be aware of it as part of your meditation, but immediately cut it off and let it go in your meditation and outside of meditation. All right, the next one, Bossum. Four foundations of mindfulness fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And how monks are the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated so that they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment? Whenever monks, a monk resides reflecting on body and body, on that occasion, unmodeled mindfulness is established in that monk. Whenever monks, unmodeled, unmodeled mindfulness has been established in a monk, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. Residing thus mindfully, he penetrates that teaching with wisdom, 
examines it, makes an investigation of it. Whenever monks, a monk resides, thus mindfully penetrates the teaching with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of investigation is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of investigation. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of investigation goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. While he penetrates the teaching with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it, his energy is aroused without slackening. Whenever monks, a monk's energy is aroused without slackening, as he penetrates the teaching with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of energy is aroused by the monk. Okay, and the same. When his energy is aroused, then arises in him joy. Whenever monks, joy arises in a monk whose vitality is aroused. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of joy is aroused by the monk. For one whose mind is uplifted by joy, the body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil. Whenever monks, the body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil in a monk whose mind is uplifted by joy, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of tranquility is aroused by the monk. For one whose, whose body is tranquil and who is joyful, the, the mind becomes concentrated. Whenever monks, the mind becomes concentrated in a monk whose body is tranquil and who is joyful, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of concentration is aroused by the monk. He becomes one who closely looks on with equanimity at the mind, thus concentrated. Whenever monks, a monk becomes one who closely looks on without with equanimity at the mind, thus concentrated. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of equanimity is aroused by the monk. Whenever monks, a monk resides reflecting on feeling in feeling, mind in mind, mental objects in mental objects, on that occasion, unmodeled mindfulness is, is established in that monk. Whenever monks, unmodeled mindfulness has been established in a monk, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. The remaining three foundations of mindfulness should be elaborated as in the case of the first foundation of mindfulness. He becomes one who closely looks on with equanimity at the mind, thus concentrated. Whenever monks, a monk becomes one who closely looks on with equanimity at the mind, thus concentrated. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of equanimity is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of equanimity goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. It is monks when the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated in this way that they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. Okay, thanks for that part too, Bossum. Uh, so here I share in the explanation detailed descriptions of the four foundations of mindfulness and a detailed description of the seven factors of enlightenment because you're going to need to understand these. You can think of the Buddhist teachings as tools. 
they're tools to refine the mind. They're tools to train the mind. And you need to learn each of these different tools so that depending on what's going on in the mind, you can invoke whatever tool you need at a given time. So the seven factors of enlightenment, the first one is mindfulness. This is about awareness of mind and those four foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha says we should always be practicing mindfulness. But then the second, third, and fourth factors of enlightenment, these are tools to help you come from a sluggish mind into the middle. So if your mind is sluggish or complacent, what the Buddha says is practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, which is examining the teachings, reading, coming to classes, things like that. By investigating the teachings, then there's this energy that springs up in the mind, and then there's this joy that comes into the mind. The more you learn about these teachings, you're liberating the mind, and there's this energy and this joy. So that's going to help you come out of the complacency. So oftentimes when the mind's complacent and sluggish, it's going to be like, ah, I really don't want to pick up that book. Oh gosh, do I really need to do one more meditation session? Oh my goodness. Oh, this is so challenging. And you just want to stay mired in that complacency and that sluggishness. But the Buddha says is the way to invigorate the mind is to start investigating the teachings. That's the solution to all of this. And that requires the enlightenment factor of investigation, which then springs up energy, which then springs up joy. But then He talks about these other three factors of enlightenment, that when the mind is excited or elated, he says, practice the enlightenment factor of tranquility, of concentration, and equanimity. This is what calms the mind down and cools it down so that it can now come into the middle. So you have to have mindfulness to know, is my mind complacent and sluggish today? Is it excited and elated. And depending on what's going on in the mind, you're going to then practice the opposites of those. That's what the seven factors of enlightenment are. Some people mistakenly think that these are to determine if you are enlightened. An enlightened being is actually going to be practicing all seven factors, but they're actually going to be practicing other things as well besides the seven factors of enlightenment. But all the way up until enlightenment, what you do is you use these seven factors of enlightenment as tools always practicing mindfulness all the time, and then using the enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, and joy to bring the mind out of the sluggish, complacent state, and then using the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity to bring it down out of an excited, elated state into the middle. And then the more the mind gets used to staying in the middle, it kind of wears out this groove, and it more and more regularly resides in this groove. And when the mind comes out of the groove of the middle with mindfulness, you catch it sooner and sooner and you're able to bring it back. So if you observe the mind going to the excited state, you catch it and bring it back. You catch it and bring it back. Same thing when you observe the mind going to a sluggish, complacent state, you catch it and bring it back, catch it and bring it back. And more and more you wear out this groove where the mind's constantly residing in the middle and then that groove gets deeper and deeper where it then won't bounce out because it'll stay permanently in the middle, which is the enlightened mind. All right, so now we'll go to this next part. Seven factors of enlightenment fulfilled through wisdom and liberation. How monks are the seven factors of enlightenment developed and cultivated so that they fulfill through wisdom and liberation? Here monks, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion. 
freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing, and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of investigation, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing, and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of energy. He develops the enlightenment factor of joy. He develops the enlightenment factor of tranquility, concentration, equanimity. It is monks when the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and cultivated in this way that they fulfill true wisdom and liberation. Okay, so that's what I was just talking about is that as you practice these seven factors of enlightenment, when you observe the mind is in this excited state, you pull it back. Or when it's in this sluggish, complacent state, you pull it back. If you allow the mind to dwell in the complacency or in the sluggishness, if you allow the mind to dwell in this excited, elated state, then that's where it's going to get used to being in those states. So whenever you observe the mind is discontent and it's dwelling even for a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds, you got to be diligent to bring it to the middle and bring it to the middle and bring it to the middle. And sometimes you might be sitting around for two hours, three hours, a day or two or three, observing how the mind is either complacent and sluggish or excited and elated. And when you catch it and you realize it, oh my goodness, bring it back to the middle. And more and more, it won't go out of the middle. The sooner you catch it, the better, because it's easier to pull it back. If your mind's been complacent for several weeks or several months, then that's going to be much more challenging to pull it back to the middle. Or if you live in this excited and elated state, it's going to be much more challenging to calm it and bring it to the middle. So that's why you would like to catch it as soon as possible, just like in meditation. That's why the Buddha is saying meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation, leads to the four foundations of mindfulness, leads to the seven factors of enlightenment, leads to true wisdom and liberation, which is enlightenment itself. Because when you're in meditation, you're remaining diligent, you're remaining dedicated, you're remaining determined that when you observe the mind's off the breath, you cut it off and let it go and bring it back. And then you do the same thing in daily life through these other tools of the four foundations of mindfulness and the seven factors of enlightenment, that whenever you observe the mind is experiencing discontentedness or it's out of that middle, cut it off, let it go, and come back to the middle, just like you do in meditation. So you're developing the ability of the mind to do this easier and easier. You're not eliminating thoughts in meditation. You'll never eliminate the thoughts. You'll slow down the thoughts, you'll quiet the thoughts, you'll still the thoughts, but still, every once in a while, an enlightened being in meditation is still gonna experience an occasional thought but they're going to notice it right away and they're going to cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. So you're not eliminating the thoughts in meditation. You're getting better and better at observing when there is a thought and then cutting it off and letting it go so that you can then use those qualities of mindfulness, awareness, use that quality of concentration to then cut off and let go of any unwholesomeness in your daily life so that you can bring the mind to the middle and it can just reside there more and more permanently. Any questions on this entire chapter? Yes, we have a question from Amina. She writes, when the mind is sluggish, we may tend to do things to keep the body busy and distracted in order to avoid study and meditation at times. In those moments, what is a beneficial technique to find the middle? That's where you've got to apply right effort You've got to just do it. 
you know, Amina, there's no magical pill or magic bullet that you can do that says, oh, you know, just tickle your, your, your right shoulder or tickle your left shoulder. And that's what's going to make your mind no longer be complacent. There's nothing like that. It's you've got to observe with mindfulness. Oh, my goodness. The mind's sluggish. It's complacent. Stop that. Let's investigate the teachings. Open up a book. Let's go meditate. Let's uh, listen to a, a podcast. Let's watch a YouTube video. You got to start with that enlightenment factor of mindfulness to have awareness that the mind is sluggish and complacent. Then you move into the next enlightenment factor, which is investigation. That's the the real trigger. That when you observe with mindfulness that the mind's sluggish and complacent, go right to investigation. Because once you start investigating the teachings, that's going to lead to energy which takes you out of that complacency and it's going to lead to joy. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. Chapter four. Yes, Miranda is the next volunteer. That's good to hear. Let me just pause for one moment because I'm just looking at the time and I know that this is just a different discourse of the same essential topic. I would just like to see if this has anything that we really need to be reading and discussing. This is going through a lot of different things. There's a lot of golden nuggets in here. I think what I'm going to do, though, is just see what questions you guys have rather than read through all of this. It's a really long one. There's a lot of golden nuggets in here. And if you're participating in this program, you've already read this. So all we need to do is see what questions you guys might have. This one is very detailed, even more detailed than the previous discourse. So let me just see what questions you guys have on this one. Does the appear to be any question teacher for this one? Okay. If there's any questions that you guys have that come up, for those of you guys that are watching this on the replay, feel free to post those in the Facebook group or reach out for personal guidance. All right, number five. Well, reflecting on the body as a body, and how monks does a monk reside reflecting on the body as a body? Here, a monk gone to the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful, he breathes in, mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, breathing in short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. Breathing in, calming the bodily sensations. Breathing out, calming the bodily sensations. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice, then making a long turn, understands, I make a long turn. Or when making a short turn, understands, I make a short turn. So too, breathing in long, a monk understands, I breathe in long, he trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily sensations. In this way, he resides reflecting on the body as body internally, or he resides reflecting on the body as a body externally, or he resides reflecting on the body as a body both internally and externally, or else he resides reflecting on the body, its arising factors, or he resides reflecting on the body, its vanishing factors, or he resides reflecting on the body, both its arising and vanishing factors or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare wisdom and mindfulness. And he resides independent 
not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk resides, reflecting on the body as a body. Okay, this particular discourse is really focusing in on the parts of breathing mindfulness meditation and the guidance that the Buddha gives about how to develop the awareness of bodily sensations. And that's what he's really getting to here. He uses this analogy of an apprentice, a skilled turner. If you've ever done work like woodwork, a a lathe, we call a lathe, uh, where it's constantly spinning and you take a, a metal implement and kind of cut out the wood. That's what a skilled turner is. And he's saying, just like a skilled turner or his apprentice understands how this piece of wood is turning either long or short, he's saying that a monk should understand or a student should understand when you're breathing in long or you're breathing out long or you're breathing in short or you're breathing out short. And as you're doing that, then you're calming the bodily sensations. So as you observe bodily sensations arising during meditation, you're calming those, you're cutting it off and letting it go, coming back to the breath, knowing whether you're focused on a short breath or a long breath, just observe the breath. That's the anchor point. That's your post or pillar that you're always going to bring the mind back to. No matter what you're experiencing in meditation, for breathing mindfulness meditation, if the mind is ever off the breath, if it's bodily sensations, if it's feelings, if it's certain condition of the mind or mental objects are in there, wherever you observe the mind's off the breath, just cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Very, very simple, very, very straightforward. Any questions here? No question, teacher. All right. Go to chapter six. Yes, and let's go to Miranda. Mindfulness of the body. Here a monk, gone to the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands I breathe in long, or breathing out long, he understands I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short, or breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, calming the bodily sensations. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily sensations. As he resides, thus diligent, dedicated, and determined, His memories and thoughts based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. That is how a monk develops mindfulness of the body. Thank you, Miranda. So here, this first part is parts that we've already explored as part of the Buddha's teachings that we've been discussing in this class so far in previous chapters. It's really this last paragraph where the Buddha is giving us something new that we haven't seen so far in the previous paragraphs. Here he's saying, you know, being diligent, dedicated, and determined, let go of the memories and thoughts of the past is essentially what it is, because he's talking here to ordained practitioners who have left the household life. And he's essentially saying, leave that behind you. So if you're a household practitioner, you would like to leave behind anything that's happened in the past. If you've been married and divorced, if you've had relationships that haven't worked out the way you would have liked, 
or if you uh, had jobs that didn't work out or a certain living arrangement or anything like this, what you should do is just let that go, leave it in the past. You're always going to know that, yeah, I was in this relationship or yes, I had this job, but the things that we experienced in those situations, we don't need to hold on to it and cling to it. Instead, we can abandon it, which is what the Buddhist saying here is essentially with diligence, dedication, and determination, let go, cut off those thoughts of the past because it's in the past. Whatever happened, whether it was pleasurable or whether it was painful, it's only going to come into the mind now and cause either pleasant feelings or painful feelings. No need to allow that to happen. So if you had a really, really good life in the past with certain wealth and certain experiences, and now you no longer have that, like the Buddha, when he was a member of the royal family and then he became homeless, he had to let go of that royal life and realizing that's not who he is anymore, that he is, in fact, a individual who doesn't have wealth and he had to let that go. But if he allowed his mind to dwell in those pleasant feelings of all that wealth, then he would be discontent in the present moment. And likewise, if you had very painful things happen to you in the past and you allow those to come into the mind now, it's going to create painful feelings now. So here the Buddha is explaining as part of meditation to allow the mind through abandoning those things of the past to then become steadied internally quieted, right? This is what I talked about in terms of you can't eliminate the thoughts, but you quiet the thoughts, you quiet the mind, you still the mind. That's what that concentration is all about. And then bringing it to singleness. This is where you know to always focus on the breath. This is why you shouldn't be counting. You shouldn't be labeling the thoughts. You shouldn't be observing the thoughts. You shouldn't be judging the thoughts. You shouldn't be trying to figure out all these problems that are happening in your life. That's not what you're doing in meditation. Outside of meditation, you can do those things. But in breathing mindfulness meditation, you're bringing it to singleness, to the breath. And that's where the mind then becomes concentrated. And then you can use that concentration in daily life. Outside of meditation, you can do those things. But in breathing mindfulness meditation, you're bringing it to singleness, to the breath. And that's where the mind then becomes concentrated. And then you can use that concentration in daily life. So we've got to let go of these things in the past and realize those don't define who we are. That's not who we are. Whether they were pleasant things or painful things, just leave it in the past and let it be. And now develop the mind to let go of that and focus on making wise decisions in the present moment. Questions on this chapter? Yes, let's go to Miranda Fitcher. Yes, sir. On uh, Facebook, Paul Richard has a couple of questions. Um, the first, Venerable Teacher, what is meant by cultivating? Are we cultivating this in our volitional formations, choices, decisions? No, you're not cultivating this in your choices or decisions. What cultivation means, it means develop or development. The Pali word, since I know you're familiar with Pali, is bhavana. That's what cultivation or development. You're developing and cultivating the mind. You're training the mind. You are refining the mind, right? 
But yes, you have to make decisions. Your choices and decisions, your volitional formations have to be in the direction of cultivation of your mind. So we aren't interested in clinging or holding on to the past and past decisions where maybe we use drugs or alcohol or we had sexual misconduct or we lied or we stole or we maybe even killed and did things like that. We need to let all that go, realizing that those were choices and decisions we made in the past. But now what we're choosing to do is cultivate the mind, develop the mind, refine the mind, train the mind. That's what the word means. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. The other question goes back to uh, chapter four, it looks like. He asks, venerable teacher, can you explain in detail about tranquility factor? How does one practice it? Yeah, so tranquility, the enlightenment factor of tranquility is calmness, is calming the mind and kind of settling the mind. So if you're observing that the mind is excited and elated, and you have mindfulness, and you're like, oh, that's not good. There must be some craving there that's brought the mind up to this excitement and elation. And I know that's only going to lead to bad things or harmful things, unwholesome things. Let me cut that off and let that go. The way that you do that is you practice tranquility, calmness of mind, bringing the mind down and just kind of creating some tranquility. The way that the Buddha describes this is that if you have a fire burning and you toss wet grass or wet cow dung on this fire, then it's going to extinguish the fire. So when you're putting tranquility on the mind, when it's in this excited and elated state, putting tranquility on the mind is like putting wet grass or wet cow dung on the fire to put out the fire, putting soil on the fire, wash out the fire. That's what you would like to do when you experience the mind in that excited state. So the tranquility is to calm the mind and bring the mind into the middle where it's now quieted and peaceful. And you can do that in meditation. So if you're going into meditation, you realize the mind's excited, you've got to calm it down there in meditation, bring it to the middle with tranquility. And then also when you do that in meditation, then you can do that in daily life through practicing this enlightenment factor of tranquility. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Well, no more questions, teacher. All right, so we'll move on to chapter seven. Mindfulness of breathing leads exclusively to Nibbana. Monks, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing. That is that one thing that, when developed and cultivated, leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. All right, thank you, Basim. This is a perfect example where the Buddha is explaining how high of a priority breathing mindfulness meditation is. He says it in other places too, but here he's giving you a pointer and he's saying, you know, breathing mindfulness meditation is that one thing that leads to liberation, that leads to enlightenment. But it's important that you don't look at this in isolation like we talked about and think that this is the only thing that you need. If someone was to read this in isolation and be like, oh, okay, that's all I need is breathing mindfulness meditation. 
Well, why do you think the Buddha taught for 45 years? Because there was so much content to learn and practice in order to get to liberation. Yes, breathing mindfulness meditation is highly important. It's a top priority, but there's a lot of other things too. So the way that you can look at this particular teaching is the Buddha saying, breathing mindfulness meditation is a top priority. That's what he's saying. He's not literally saying this is the only thing. He's just saying this is that one thing. But there's also a second thing and a third thing and a fourth thing and a fifth thing that he taught as part of his teaching. So be sure you understand what the Buddha is sharing here is he's just sharing that breathing mindfulness meditation leads to enlightenment. Therefore, it's a top priority. Questions here? No, that's sure. No question, that's sure. All right. So we'll go to chapter eight. Yes, let's go to Miranda. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing leads to the abandoning of the fetters. Monks, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, leads to the abandoning of the fetters. And how, monks, is concentration by mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it leads to the abandoning of the fetters? Here, monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he knows, I breathe out short. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, as in chapter one. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is in this way, monks, that concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, so that it leads to the abandoning of the fetters. Okay, thank you, Miranda. The fetters here, he's referring to the 10 fetters. These are the 10 taints or the 10 pollutions of mind that need to be eliminated in order to get to enlightenment. It's not until a practitioner eliminates all 10 fetters that the mind will actually experience enlightenment permanently. From that point forward, once those fetters are completely eliminated from the mind, it will no longer experience any discontentedness permanently for the rest of this life. And then once a being dies, they will no longer be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. So the Buddha is explaining here that breathing mindfulness meditation leads to the elimination of the fetters, which is once again to say Breathing mindfulness meditation leads to enlightenment. He's just making it more detailed and more refined because if you understand that you need to eliminate the 10 fetters, then this is giving you another perspective and being sure that he's pointing to the 10 fetters as leading to enlightenment. Where in before, in the other teachings, he says breathing mindfulness meditation leads to enlightenment. Here he's making it even more specific saying it leads to the elimination of the 10 fetters, which someone who understands, understands that, okay, well, if I've eliminated the 10 fetters, that's enlightenment. The mind leads to enlightenment. And then I would like to just point out here, you're going to see in a few chapters where in this book, I just repeat rather than make the book completely long and using a lot of different paper, I just put repeat as in chapter one. So that big, long list of guidance that the Buddha gives, it just gets repeated there. So you would just insert that in there, knowing that that just gets repeated over and over. Questions on this chapter? 
No question, teacher. All right, move on and on to chapter nine. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing leads to uprooting of underlying tendencies. Monks, concentration by mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated leads to the uprooting of underlying tendencies. And how monks is concentration by mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it leads to the uprooting of underlying tendencies. Here monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, breathing in short. He trains us experiencing the whole body. He trains us reflecting on letting go. It is in this way, monks, that concentration by mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that, so that it leads to the uprooting of underlying tendencies. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So here, let's talk about an underlying tendency. This isn't something we've talked about yet. So we talk about craving, desire, attachment, right? The Buddha uses also for the three unwholesome roots and the three fires. He uses this anger, hatred, ill will. And this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, this confusion or delusion, these are like pretty strong words to be able to help you to understand what these poisons or these unwholesome roots are. And if you think about these things as a spectrum, craving, desire, attachment is like on one side of the spectrum. But then there's these underlying tendencies, which are still craving, desire, attachments, but they're just kind of like really light ones. So if you have the habit of like, say, you always have a habit of scratching your face, like just scratching your face and scratching your face. Or if you've ever seen someone that always kind of throws their hair over and just always kind of has this underlying tendency just to always kind of like touch their hair and move it in a certain place. Or you might have a certain website on the internet that you just look at, you know, regularly. It's not a craving. It's not a desire. If something comes into the mind or somebody attracts your attention, you're not going to have this rip roaring discontentedness if this thing doesn't get fulfilled. But there's like this little underlying tendency, this little residual craving, this little residual desire. And what the Buddha is saying is you need to eliminate those too. You can't have this situation where you're just constantly fixing the hair and fixing the hair, fixing the hair. There's this underlying tendency, almost this obsessive nature about us. And we have some of these as it relates to various things that we do in our life. It's like the mind is on this cycle, the cycle of rebirth, right? The mind's just continuously doing this one thing over and over and over again. And it might not be obsessive compulsive like OCD, but it might be like, Whenever you're in front of a TV, you just have to always do the same thing or you have to always go into your kitchen and do the same thing. There can be these little underlying tendencies and you have to uproot all of those. And the Buddha is saying that breathing mindfulness meditation is the way to do that and what leads to that. So we know breathing mindfulness meditation eliminates craving, desire, attachment. Well, it also uproots these underlying tendencies, this lower on the spectrum. Craving, desire, attachment is on one side of the spectrum. These underlying tendencies are on the other side of the spectrum, still leading to discontentedness. And you might not notice them as regularly 
If there's something craving desire attachment in the mind, you can feel the mind pulling. It's really strong. It arises this fierce discontentedness in the mind or this extreme elation in the mind. You can observe that. It's very clear and obvious. But there's these underlying tendencies that just keeps the mind kind of on this cycle. And you would like to extinguish those too. So wherever you see those, you would like to eliminate those. And breathing mindfulness meditation will help you to do that because where you see those repetitive behaviors or those repetitive thought patterns happening in your life, you can then observe them with mindfulness and then cut them off and let them go. If you've done the training in breathing mindfulness meditation to make it easier for you to do that because you'll observe them more readily with mindfulness and you'll be able to cut them off and let them go more readily as well. Questions on this chapter? Yes, let's go to Marada. Yes, sir. Um, I have a question on Facebook first. Uh, venerable teacher, how does one reflect on letting go, breathing in versus reflecting on letting go, breathing out? There is instruction to reflect on letting go on both breaths. We practice cutting off on breathing out. Would you please help on clearing this up? Yeah, so what you should do is as you're first establishing your meditation session, the way that I teach is to ease in with chanting, although some people may not do that. But from the beginning of your meditation mm -hmm. session, you should start establishing your the breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, just nice and gradual, right? And as you're developing that more and more, just gradually breathing in and breathing out, you might need for a few minutes at the beginning of your meditation to reflect on letting go. Like if you observe as you're establishing the breath that something comes into the mind, you might need to say to the mind, let it go, let it go, let it go. But you're not interested in doing that throughout the entire course of your meditation. But you can do that at different times if you need to. If you're struggling in the meditation and you're having challenges to let it go, you can repeat in the mind, let it go, let it go. You can even do that in daily life as well. But what you would like to eventually get to over multiple sessions, maybe weeks and months, years, is get to eat longer and longer periods of time in your meditation where the mind is quieted and stilled. But in order to do that, you might need this reflecting on letting go that the Buddha is talking about occasionally in order to more readily and easily train the mind to let it go. Sometimes repeating that affirmation. And it doesn't necessarily have to be on the out breath or the in breath. It might even just need to be a constant just reminder, let it go, let it go, let it go. But then once you observe that the mind has let it go, just go back to focusing on the breath and only the breath. And then get a nice elongated period of time, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, however long. And then if something else comes into the mind, if you need to use the let it go, let it go, do that. But over time, what you would like to do is not need that, is you would like to be able to just in meditation, observe the minds off the breath, cut it off, let it go and come back. No let it go, let it go needed but you will probably have to build up to that. And the reason why you would like to do this is because ultimately what you're doing is training the mind that in daily life, when something happens, to be able to cut it off and let it go. So if you're in a conversation with somebody and you're listening to them speak and you're observing anger arising based on something they're saying and you're telling the mind, let it go, let it go, let it go. All right, you might need to do that early in practice. 
But what you would like to ultimately get to is somebody says something, you experience the anger arising, you just cut it off and let it go. You don't need to do all this let it go, let it go, let it go stuff. But you might need that in meditation and outside of meditation as you're working with this and getting more skillful with it. But eventually you would like all that to fade away that the mind can just do it. It just responds to the situation. Rather than react with anger and hostility, you just respond with cut that off and then you can just smile. And you don't have to tell the mind, let it go, let it go. Oh, please let it go. Don't come up, anger. Don't come up. No, don't do that. Oh, why is it coming? Right? So just be aware that you might need that for a period of time. Use it for as long as you need. But you would like to get to the point where you aren't reliant on that. And the mind can just do it as a natural response, as first nature, whenever you observe discontentedness arising. Thank you, sir. Also, with reading this, it seems like, is it very common then for a practitioner as they develop their breathing mindfulness meditation and develop their mindfulness in day-to-day life, they start noticing more and more of these underlying tendencies? Yes, because once you knock down the real heavy craving, then what's left is these underlying tendencies. And you might start noticing them more because early in practice, you're working on that big, heavy stuff, right? You're getting the big, low-hanging fruit. You're knocking out some of these big, major craving, desire attachments. But once you clear a lot of that out, then you're going to see these underlying tendencies. I think about it like a like a garbage heap or a rubbish heap. You're, you're clearing off the top of the garbage, and oh my goodness, there's still more garbage. You're clearing off the top of the garbage. Oh my goodness, there's still more garbage. And you keep cleaning and cleaning and cleaning, and you get all the way down to where it's just solid ground, and there's just nice earthy material, and there's no garbage whatsoever, and the mind is just solid and stable. So these underlying tendencies You're going to see them more and more as you get down through some of the bigger, heavier cravings. You're going to see some of these little tiny things. I've broken my nose twice and I have cartilage in my nose and I used to always correct my nose. And I used to enjoy hearing the sound in the head that I would always do this like when I was in college or something. And this nervous energy would come up and I would just always like crack the nose and crack the nose and crack the nose. And I was even able to crack my earlobes at one time, the cartilage in my earlobes. I used to reach up and pull it and pull it and pull it. It was just this obsessive underlying tendency. But nowadays I don't do that anymore, but you have to train the mind to not do that. So when you feel the urge to pull on that ear, you got to, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to cut that off and let it go. Or if you see any other underlying tendencies, maybe some people have like a pin and they're like constantly shaking their pin or they're tapping their pin on the table. This is an underlying tendency. It's not really like on the spectrum of craving, desire, attachment. It's not over there. It still is a craving, desire, attachment, but it's a lesser version. It's this underlying tendency and it's tapping this pin. This is an overactive mind. This is the restless mind. The mind is overactive and obsessive about this. So now because the mind is overactive, it's coming through the body and you're observing it in a bodily action. But where that's coming from is it's actually coming from the mind. So you have to do the work inside the mind to stop that restlessness in the mind, calm the activity, and that's what will calm the tapping of the pin. 
And another example of that is like bobbing the knee. If you see somebody or if you've ever done this where you've bobbed your knee, you just sit in one spot and you just tap, 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 and you bob your knee up and down. This is because of the restless mind, the overactive mind. So you've got to train the mind and get rid of that underlying tendency and that'll calm the body. And that's what the Buddha was talking about in this previous chapter where he was saying breathing mindfulness meditation leads to tranquility. And with tranquility of mind, then the body is tranquil. When the mind is tranquil, the body is tranquil. So if you see that you're tapping your finger or tapping a pin or bobbing your knee, this is because your mind's overactive. And if you train the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation to cut that off and let it go, then you'll see the body will become tranquil. It won't have this overactivity in the body because the mind is calm. So therefore the body will be calm. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Well, no more questions, teacher. All right, the last chapter for today, chapter 10. Yes, let's go to Miranda. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing leads to the full understanding of the path. Monks, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, leads to the full understanding of the path. And how, monks, is concentration by mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it leads to the full understanding of the path? Here, monks, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he knows, I breathe out short. He trains thus experiencing the whole body, repeated as in chapter one. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is in this way, monks, that concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, is developed and cultivated so that it leads to the full understanding of the path. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, if you read this chapter in the explanation that I provided, you'll see where I discuss how practicing meditation, you're actually practicing the entire Eightfold Path all at one time. The Eightfold Path in daily life is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And you learn those factors of the path really, really deeply. And you need to remember and retain the understanding of what each one of those steps are and how to practice each one of those so that you can practice them in daily life. Well, once you do that, if you then start reflecting on your meditation and look at what you're doing in meditation, is you're actually practicing all eight factors of the path all at one time. This is why meditation is so impactful for you. Because it's the Eightfold Path that leads to liberation of the mind. It leads to freedom of strong feelings. It leads to enlightenment, to Nibbana. This Eightfold Path practiced in daily life is what will ultimately lead to enlightenment. And when you practice that, you'll see that the mind will become more and more liberated. But in meditation, you're actually consolidating and practicing all eight factors all at one time for however long you meditate, say 30 minutes. And that's why it becomes so impactful for you because you've practiced all eight steps 
to perfection if you dial in your meditation really well. So therefore you get immediate wholesome results because you've been doing nothing but wholesomeness for 30 minutes, two or three times a day, or for 45 minutes or an hour, however long you're meditating for. You're doing only wholesome things. You're practicing all eight factors in a consolidated time. And therefore you get this immediate benefit these immediate wholesome results. So if you practice breathing mindfulness meditation, the Buddha is saying, okay, this leads to full understanding of the path because you'll be able to observe that you're actually practicing all eight factors at one time during the actual meditation. And if you look at the explanation here, I go through and explain each individual step and how meditation is essentially practicing each of these eight steps of the eightfold path during your meditation. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to any questions that you guys have. Yes, teacher. Let's go to Miranda. Yes, sir. Paul Richit has uh, two questions on Facebook. Venerable teacher, reflection can be done by affirmations? No. When you're reflecting, you're reflecting outside of, of meditation. When you're in meditation, when the Buddha is saying reflecting on letting go, this is what you do for just that temporary period. If you need it, not always, but if you need it, train the mind and use that let it go, let it go, let it go. But if you're going to reflect, when I say learn, reflect, and practice, that's what you're doing outside of meditation. Because remember, what meditation is, is a dedicated, active, purposeful training session to either eliminate unwholesome qualities or cultivate wholesome qualities, right? So when you're reflecting and you're contemplating and you're thinking or you're pondering about life, you do that outside of meditation. That's not where you would reflect on life or you reflect on the teachings, for example. You wouldn't do that in meditation. Instead, you're doing this dedicated, active, purposeful training session to eliminate unwholesome qualities and cultivate wholesome qualities. You're not doing any reflection or thinking or pondering during your meditation. Thank you, sir. Also, he asks, would you describe about reflecting? Yeah, so the way that I think about reflecting is it's that thinking and pondering, that inward looking eye. So if you've got something challenging in your life, I know that you go to school, you're working on your PhD program and you're trying to figure out, you know, how do I put this thesis together and how am I going to find the time to do this balancing with my life and my family obligations? How am I going to conduct my life and actually go present my thesis to the professors? Well, you can sit somewhere, not meditation, but you can sit somewhere or be somewhere and you can reflect. You can look inward and think over, you know, what's the best way for me to do this? Let me arrange my life like this. Let me spend time on this day with my family. Let me spend a few hours here. Let me carve out this time in the evening for my study or in the morning for my study. This is reflecting. This is looking inward. Right. So you can reflect and contemplate about various things in life in order to come to a wise decision. 
and you might need to reflect or contemplate over various decisions that you're going to make multiple times, particularly if it's a big decision and a very impactful decision, you might have to reflect on that multiple times over multiple situations before you actually come to some decision. And then even when you have an idea of what decision you would like to make, you might need to reflect on that with something very impactful and look at all the pros and cons of making this particular decision. That's reflecting. But you also need to reflect on the teachings as well. So if you're finding that you're having discontentedness or you're struggling in your relationships or you're having challenges in various parts of your life, you can reflect, you can think and ponder, look inward and determine what aspect of these teachings do you need to draw out, which aspect you need to cultivate and develop more in order to address this particular situation. And part of that reflection, you might come to the decision, I need to talk to my teacher, or I need to read that book, or I need to do more meditation, or things like this. So this is what reflection would be, is looking inward and kind of observing the condition of the mind, observing what's going on in your life and how things are happening in your life, observing the relationships that you have in your life and where do you need to maybe improve your relationships. Maybe with your mom and dad, you're practicing loving kindness and compassion really well, but with your sisters and your brothers, you're not. You're not really practicing loving kindness and compassion. Therefore, you need to kind of bolster that. And you kind of come to that conclusion through your reflection of looking inward. It's like, wow, I'm always loving and kind and compassionate with mom and dad, but why am I lacking that with brother and sister? Let me kind of create more loving kindness and compassion in this relationship. And that's going to help you to have a a more harmonious relationship with your brother and sister. So that's what it means to reflect, is to look inward and come to some thinking and pondering and come to some decisions that will help you in this life. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Honorable Teacher. That's all for today. All right. So I'll just end with thanking you guys, like I always do, pretty much. Thanking you guys for joining today's class. Thank you for your dedication and diligence to be studying these chapters before class. Next week on Saturday, we're going to be doing the same book, chapters 11 through 20. So now with this understanding that we had today and what we've shared in today's class, as you embark on the rest of this book and reading these chapters, you can be reading these chapters based on the things that we've already discussed during this particular class. So you can build your knowledge slowly but surely as you're working through this book. And remember, you can come to class with questions and ask those during class. You can post them into the Facebook group if you like, or you can reach out for personal guidance or send me a personal private message if you like. But there's all these different methods for you to get help. And by you investigating these teachings, then slowly but surely you'll be gaining the wisdom that you need to, in this case, develop your meditation practice and understand why it is that you're meditating. That's so important for the mind. Oftentimes we overlook that. We look at the technique and we look at the mechanics of meditating 
and we don't necessarily look at the why. Why are we meditating? What should we be looking to accomplish? And how does this relate to our daily practice? That's what the Buddha's words are giving you, is showing you all those connections, not just focus on the technique. If you notice, he spends very little time, if any, talking about the technique. He's like, cross your legs, have an upper body that's erect, and start focusing on the breath. But most of what is being shared in his discourses is connecting why you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation and how it connects to all the other teachings. And that's what you're going to glean out of this book. So thank you all for your dedication to studying this. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in chapter 23, which is titled Symbolism of the Teachings reminders through imagery. We're going to be talking about the different images and how these symbols were used during the lifetime of the Buddha to remind people of the teachings and then helping you to understand that so that when you look at painting or artworks or go to temples and you see architecture, you'll understand how the meaning of the teachings is actually embedded into various symbols. And then when you see those symbols, it will help you to remember and recall the teachings thus deepening your practice. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing a refresh of breathing mindfulness meditation. I normally teach that as a four-part series, but we're going to be spending some time doing meditation together, yes, but also refreshing your memory about what breathing mindfulness meditation is and how we're actually doing it within the group learning program. So I'll see you guys either next Saturday perhaps on Sunday or Wednesday. And in the meantime, have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadika. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.